We're going to start with me and then go to you, okay? <laughs> yeah, why don't we start with you and then go to me? Okay. okay, my name is Kent Dahlgren, and this is... Ruth Glendinning. And we're going to talk about the Anti-Fragile Playbook. Because we're anti-fragile, and we want you to be, too. <laughs> yes. Well, hey, Ruth, it's Kent. Hey, Kent, it's Ruth. I was hoping we could continue on our um, conversation, the last conversation. Uh, is this a good time? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so what we were talking about, we had, I had a, um, it was actually just continuing a conversation that you and I had, um, we're sitting next to Bull Creek, actually, you got your feet in the creek right above the waterfall, I'm pacing around, and you and I are talking about how to engage people, how to get people to, to seek out collaborations with their neighbors so they can come up with solutions to problems that a lot of us are facing. And there was this guy that was running along and he stopped and he was completely wrapped, actually. And, uh, and it was kind of cool because we were, we were talking about, you know, um, a person's, you know, uh, they've had a tough day. They decided to reward themselves with a walk. This they might go on this walk all the time, but let's say they walk for an hour, and then they 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 walk a, a circuit around the neighborhood. If they walk at a brisk pace, they cover about three miles, and within that three miles is about 340 acres. Um, and if you're in a, in a in a city like Austin or Portland or Seattle or whatever, um, you know, or even Denver. That's about 1,200 homes, about 5,000 residents. And so in our last conversation, we talked, it was our contention that you might be able to form a, a really actually productive collaboration through um, um, uh, through some fairly creative means. We used examples of, you know, uh, uh, a potluck or just talking to somebody and finding out what they need and stuff like that. It was it's my experience. If you can form a relationship with just one other person, that's a fabulous way to start. Right. Um, and, and, and in the last conversation, we talked about forms of soft capital that might be transcendent of the benefit of hard capital, otherwise known as money. Cause we usually think if I just had money, things would get better. Right. So in this conversation, I think we usually go free for a moment, but, but I was thinking maybe like, what do you think about us talking about the anti-fragile playbook a little bit? I, I think that'll be really helpful. Um, you know, right now people are pretty much in overwhelm, you know, that all of their reliable uh, cornerstones in their life are changing. And uh, that includes their ability to create uh, life for their family and for their friends, or even how to interact with people. And it's really showed up uh, how fragile our system is as, as, a, as a whole. Um, so the idea of anti-fragile, I know, has really appealed to people, even though they don't fully understand it. Right. I like the idea of anti-fragility because it's, um, because, you know, I like to build things. I, I built uh, a lot of skateboard stuff when I was a kid. I was just having a conversation with my friend Beth last night, you know, actually the way you build a system, what an anti-fragile system is one that actually becomes strengthened under increased pressure, actually. So, you know, if you were going to build a house in an area with lots of wind, it would be one that would be strengthened when it was under more wind, right? So the way to do it is to actually build it in a state of duress. That's actually how you build an mm -hmm. anti-fragile mm -hmm. system is you're not building it under ideal conditions and then testing it. You're actually building it while it's being tested. And, um, and that's actually a pretty good framing because that's the situation we're in right now. There's a lot of people who are having a hard time paying their mortgage, maybe paying their rent. They might be thinking, I might have to get out of this neighborhood, right? I might have to actually move to somewhere uh, cheaper. But in so doing, you lose those relationships with the people around you. So how do you, how do you, how do you dig in and start swimming back upstream, right? And then the easy answer is if I just had money, it would be better. But that's not always the case. And, and often we don't have that option. So that's kind of what we were talking about is, you know, let's put together a book that helps people 
um, uh, 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 achieve this state of anti-fragility, um, even though the system is under a state of duress. And, and by virtue of its design, it's our supposition that the design would become more um, strengthened, even as things get worse. And, and this is, we're in such a unique time because we're having a global shared experience. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, and the only times in, in modern history we have is that there are physical wars, that there's a, a binary, there's a good guys and the bad guys, there's the allies and there's the axis. And right. it's just not like that now, that, that you don't know who you are because you've never been tested in this way. And you're learning a lot, not only about yourself, but around the, the whole society. And so right. it's such an ideal time to test out this theory of anti-fragility, which has been used uh, pretty regularly in science and in the test materials. And, uh, you know, and, and especially with alternative materials strength and, and, and see how, how they respond to environmental pressures. What we're saying here is that Let's take the, that framework and apply it to humans, right. to actual people who are fragile in so many ways, but they're extraordinarily strong in others. Right. I mean, the cool thing about this is that we're not inventing anything new as far as that goes. No. This is what people have been doing for millennia. And as I talked about in the last video, and I had written an essay about it, I talked about, you know, hey, I grew up at the feet of giants at the feet of, and on the floor of my grandmother's kitchen, right? So they were telling stories about how they got through the, the Great Depression. My grandma's um, it's actually her birthday today. And, uh, and her, um, her dad died when she's three months old and they lived in uh, West Texas at the tail end of the Dust Bowl experience. And then, you know, by degrees, they made their way to Oregon. And so what they did is that they told stories about how they got through hard times and they told stories with laughter, which as a kid, that tells you something. It tells you that we are people who persist and even thrive under hard times and we laugh about it. That's the thing. It's subtle, but it's an important thing, right? So, you know, I end up coming up my whole life thinking I can't wait for me to contribute to these family stories, right? Well, here we are. So where do I go for inspiration? I go to the family stories. How did they get through hard times? And I can assure you that they had substantially fewer resources around. Like we were just surrounded by abundance, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's significantly different than it was during Dust Bowl, uh, uh, Great Depression time, you know? And, uh, and I had talked about uh, one example that I had taught my son is how to walk the streets in the neighborhood and, 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 and approach neighbors with a broken car and tell them, look, we'll fix you. We'll fix the car. Um, you pay for the part. We fix it. And then we'll sell it for you and we'll split the price. And it's a great way to make extra money if you know how to work on cars. And, uh, uh, and there's just a lot of, lot of cool things you can do in the neighborhood. But, but again, a lot of us will buy our way into a neighborhood by buying a house and because we're working so hard we haven't got to know our neighbors we don't do that right and uh and so you know we don't have those relationships and um and so what we had talked about is how do you begin how you begin is probably how people did 100 years ago or 200 years ago or a thousand years ago is bringing a kettle of soup over to your neighbor right well and and i know when my uh older sister and i when we first moved to the new neighborhood in Houston in 1967, the first thing we did is we just knocked on people's doors and said, hey, do you have kids we can play with? Right. You know, And once the kids are friends, then the parents become friends. And right. then you start weaving that, that, uh, that connection at, at, at the smallest part, place possible, which happened to be in the form of uh, two girls aged five and six. That was, that was what we did. But that was also a time when people were more engaged with building a full life, not just chasing after a living. 
So as you said earlier, you know, people buy their way into a certain economic zone and they don't have, it's, it's perceived as this luxury if you can actually meet people. And it's like, well, that's not really what we're here on the planet to do is to, you know, put our whole life into a machine and then, oh, if we have anything left over, we start to have, you know, um, deepening our human experience. Right. So it being anti-fragile from my perspective is, being able to uh, bend and break and grow with the world as it is so that you're deeply rooted enough to see the world as it can be. Right. And that, that's what we want to uh, help guide people through with the anti-fragile playbook. Yeah, I should introduce that my, because Ruth and I have only known each other since March of this year, and yet we're thick as thieves, we talk all the time. And we realized, by the way, that our collaborations have likely gone on for a lot longer than that. There's like the most bizarre things where like, I realized I was pro- I was designing a product and what was that? 2011, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was using metaphors I'd never used before, but her dad was an optometrist. <laughs> and so it's like, when we talk, I'm like, holy, you know, get out of my, I always say, get out of my head, Aquaman. And then we crack up. So, you know, the thing is, is that we have this sort of like strong collaboration and there was somewhere along the way, I can't even remember what it was. We talked about I think it was you that said, let's do an anti-fragile playbook. And we just laughed as a yeah. word joke. But it was this thing. It's like, yeah, let's put together a playbook that helps people, helps people figure out how to do it themselves so they get credit. And there was a lot of things that sort of came together for me. Like one of them well, was, go ahead. And let me just, let me just say this though. That's when Kent, after all, all of our months of intensely talking about everything goes, oh, by the way, did you know that I created the skate park guide? I'm like, yeah. oh, that would be helpful. You know? Yeah. And, and, and in fact, the deeper story on this is that I, ha- I worked at Xerox at the time and I was the executive director for a nonprofit that taught that was there to help people be better skateboard advocates. Because, you know, our feeling on this is that we couldn't be the one that does the advocacy. You actually have to get people to be better advocates themselves. Because to get a skateboard park, you think it's just about asking the city to do it. But that's not how things work in cities. You've got to persuade them. And a way to persuade them is to get community activation. Right. So, you know. What I did is it's sitting there at my desk at, at, at Xerox, I would I would research successful skateboard projects and then I would research who was responsible. And inevitably it was the mom, although it wasn't always a woman, but it was the person who, you know, uh, kids would come and they'd sit and have sandwiches and, she, you know, uh, they would, you know, be given refreshments. Sometimes it was a dude, but most often it was a mom or a grandma, more, even more likely. And so I would contact them and I would say, can you send me your binder? Because all of them had a binder. All of them had like a three ring binder that um, that was uh, had the letters and it had the grant applications and the newspaper clippings. And it goes from the beginning to the end at the ribbon cutting. And then it sits on their shelf and nobody looks at it. And, uh, and so they were pleased. They were tickled to have me look at it. So they mailed it to me. And I'm at Xerox and I ended up pulling them apart and I put them all together. There's this thing called a war room. It's where you um, deconstruct a copier all the way down to its atomic parts. And it wasn't being used at the time. So I used the war room to decompose these playbooks, um, these binders, if you will. And I realized they fall into a, a fairly consistent um, uh, progression. And uh, sorry, I had to mute myself because you guys don't need to hear me sneeze. So what I realized is they fall into the same process. What they were doing is exposing, they were revealing that there's the same process over and over again. And because I was working in manufacturing, that made sense to me. It starts at the beginning, it ends at the end. Totally makes sense. Uh, but what I realized is a lot of advocates don't realize where they are in the process, right? And, and so um, I'll give you a really good example. People might have an idea about what they need for their neighborhoods and they always go to money every time. <laughs> they always go to money, but they don't realize that if they're not prepared to, ex- to receive that money, it's chaos. In fact, if they don't do their homework, they're not going to get the money. That's all there is to it. So a lot of what we're talking about is the pragmatism uh, necessary 
um, to structure your project uh, properly so you can actually receive that money. And also, so it doesn't create chaos, it creates uh, a productive outcome. So in this particular exercise, there was a five-step process, which began with uh, a vision, and then it went to advocacy, and um, uh, uh, which is about building your team, and then it went to fundraising, and then it went to building the park, and then it went to stewardship. And then at that point, we had a pretty good outline. We could compile content, but we didn't know how to actually get it done. And, and, and I had encountered, there's a professional skateboarder named Jim Gray. I was actually on one of his podcasts recently talking about this. And he was with the skateboard industry, the International Association of Skateboard Companies. And they needed to do a book, but didn't have the content. So boom, there was a great marriage. And then there was um, the Tony Hawk Foundation. So they actually, Tony Hawk Foundation, um, Tony Hawk actually wrote the introduction. My friend Pete, who was the basically the um, uh, regional director for Seattle and uh, the art director, um, formerly art director for the people that do Dungeons and Dragons. He's the one that put the whole book together and, uh, and it got published, two, two printed copies and it went to lots of advocates It helped them become more successful. It actually was included in curriculums across the country for masters of urban planning, the, the projects for public spaces, they adopted it as a, as a great frame for what was needed for skateboard stuff. And what it did is that it helped them um, uh, uh, affect a reduction in the time necessary to build a skateboard park. It used to take five to seven years. It went down to 18 to 36 months. And it was really just because we helped people become more successful and they got the credit. That's the cool thing. So yeah, Bruce Wright, we were like five, six months into our friendship and I was like, oh, BT dubs, I've done this before, but it wasn't me. It was our, it was the community that did it. So I knew how to do it. And part of how to do it is to activate community, which is what we're doing with the anti-fragile playbook right now. We're not technically well, doing it. We're essentially inviting y'all to come help us. Yeah, and, and that and also it is is a, a container around potential, because this potential for growth and change and emergence is everywhere. And so you know we we engage with it all day every day, and it has to go into a container so that we can interact with it in a more focused way. Right. So the container is called the playbook. So if, so you don't have to, you know, spend hours and hours and hours just trying to get to the right question. Right. We were, you know, we're listing the questions and you co-create the answers because right. the answers are going to be particular to your, your community and to, to the strengths and the undiscovered talents that already exist there, that soft capital that we're speaking about. And yeah, that, that, that's the, the you know, where, where a lot of people are in overwhelm right now and what they need is a guide that, well, that's been proven. Well, in fact, so playbook is a metaphor that doesn't resonate for me because I'm not a sports guy, right? But we use something like that in the military. Uh, I put together a guide. I was in a combat communication squadron, and it would be, um, you know, what we could expect to do is lose everybody three times in the context of an exercise. So we needed to make sure there was some operational continuity. And so I put together a guide that would sit in people's pockets, and that way we could be successful. I got some recognition for that. But, but similarly, I'm actually looking on my desk. I've got this award, Sales Impact Player of the Year. So I worked at a company called Tripwire in 2012. We had lost almost all of our salespeople heading into the fourth quarter. It was chaos. People were overwhelmed. <laughs> so working yeah. with sales management, a lot of whom had just been hired, we put together a playbook that helped people rapidly become effective at sales. So, um, and it worked for them because they got the sports metaphors, how salespeople go. So, you know, when Ruth said anti-fragile playbook, it was as if a lot of things had collapsed all of a sudden. I was like, <gasps> dude, I know someone who can help with that. She's like, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're looking at him. <laughs> Who's got two thumbs. It can help you out. <laughs> yeah. And, and I also really like that it has the word play in the title um, uh -huh. because this is a, you know, people are rightly taking everything seriously now. Right. And part of the human experience is play. It's laughter. 
it's it's reaching back into that time when you didn't feel as limited as you know your as your potential vision of the future. And so let's get back to playing. Let's let's get yeah. back into that storyline. Well, let's talk about my grandma who lost her dad when she was three months old in the middle of the depression, right? Yeah. And what her her sisters and her and her brothers and the family. And, and by the way, what my family does is they adopt people who have similar values, which means the family grows along similar lines, right? their stories are told with laughter. And the story is one of unrelenting tragedy. <laughs> Actually, you know? yeah. So it's, it's informed my philosophy that comedy is tragedy plus time, right? But it's one that brings us together. Like my uncle Oren, my great uncle Oren, um, uh, you know, may his memory be a blessing, was literally rolled over by a log when he was foresting in the old growth forest in Oregon. And then, you know, my cousin Oren is named after him. And for some reason, that's a punchline in my family. I don't know why, but it makes me laugh every time. You know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, that's how that's how people get through hard times is they turn tragedy into comedy. And that's how you that's how you prevail. But in order to do that, this is literally what you and I were talking about last night. In order to do that, you've got to have faith. And I'm not talking religion here. You've got to have the belief it's going to be OK. Otherwise, it's not funny. Otherwise, it's tragic. Right. So, you know. Well, and, 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 you know, you also have a faith that it's worth the time. You have to have faith that there, that even if this is a tree, you're not going to sit under that in a hundred years, somebody's going to get shade from that tree and it's going to change their life. And right. so there's a lot of, lot of uh, ways to use faith as a lens. And what uh, Trudy Martinez always says, and I quote her all the time is that we have to surrender to faith, not a mm -hmm. dogma, not a one lens on the world. It's saying that we have faith in humans and ourselves and each other yes. to bring forward a life of meaning for everybody with no exceptions. Yes. Yes. Uh, Ruth, so, frequently, Ruth, Ruth frequently uses the metaphor of being at the loom and weaving and within the gaps in, those, in that weave is space for everyone. We can't be, this kind of gets back to something you said about 10 minutes ago. We are acculturated to discard people and mm -hmm. we can't actually afford to do that. Nobody, and this is the thing that, that I, I wish I could get through to people. We can't afford to because of the damage it does to ourselves. We, mm -hmm. cannot, we cannot do that because of the damage it does to our own souls. If we get into a place where we rip and run and we discard others, it hurts us. That's the thing. So this is, this is the thing I think a lot about. Something we talked about the last conversation. You learn by teaching, you heal by healing. You, you, you use what you have in a way to affect uh, a healing to somebody else, right? And so, you know, we're talking a lot about, a lot sounds like a lot of squishy topics, but we're really just, we want to get real concrete. People are in a state of economic duress and things will probably get a little bit more difficult before they get better. And they are taught that money makes things better, but that's not actually true. There's um, usually a, a drop in the bucket here and there. If you get a large infusion of money, it creates chaos, which you, which you actually need is, is, is an investment in soft capital. And I would say that that kind of gets to the, the heart of what we're, we're, we're doing in the beginning of the anti-fragile playbook isn't even steps. It's the introduction of nomenclature, actually, because um, Ruth had introduced herself as a word nerd. And, and, I, and I, this seems like, and again, we go free form on this, but it wouldn't hurt to say, well, maybe it's time to reintroduce some topics people thought they understood, but actually don't. I mean, wealth is a great one. Do you want to, like, I'm just going to throw the old ball at you and pretend like I understand sport. <laughs> Wealth is a great one to talk about because people are drowning in wealth and don't recognize it. The abundance is completely overwhelming, but they don't recognize it, you know? Yeah, and, and, and it's been real interesting to have people, uh, uh, they, they interchange money and wealth as if they're the same things. And 
money is a is very transactional, you know, and, and the way I've I've described it over the years to people, money is an agreed upon agreed upon form of energy exchange. That that we you do a thing and I give you a thing and it's done. It's transactional. Right. Wealth, on the other hand, um, is more expansive. It has right. dimensionality to it. That certainly putting the coin in the machine, you know, that's your transaction is fantastic because the machine starts, but then all the things that happen in order for that machine to produce something at the other end of it, it that's where the real magic is. It's where, um, if you've looked at Rube Goldberg and his, if you ever played the game Mousetrap, that's who Rube Goldberg is. And it's just all the crazy connections that need to happen to actually create this, something that, is, that, that has meaning beyond money that is wealth. And that has that because what it does is it gives you an emotional feedback. It gives you uh, a memory. It gives you a future. It it can help. It can transport you into other places. So that's what we're looking at. Is so if we're in this other place, are you a placeholder? Are you a placemaker? Right. And placemakers are those who recognize wealth in themselves and others and understand that the more I have, the more we have that it's not this competition because I don't do better because you're doing worse. You know, in fact, that's, it, it's completely the opposite. And that's when we talk about these things, we're always talking about what is the real meaning of language and what is the root of, of the, the meaning. And you find that, that you do what we call flipping the script a lot. Like when you're talking about affordability versus ability to afford on, in, you know, at first glance, yeah, those might feel like they're the same thing. But when you look into it, which is the one where you actually, as a human, have more access to opportunity? It's when it's at the ability to afford, because we're, we're looking at you to say, what other wealths do you have at, at your hands? You know, the, the invisible capitals to actually create a world that works for everybody, no exceptions. Right. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a, the statement that you have, I really like it. It's, it's, affordability versus ability to afford because there's a gap in there that I invite people to really think about that. Um, I've lived in a nice neighborhood in a pretty big house. I earned my way into there because I was well compensated. Um, and when we were in a state of significant distress because, um, because of family stuff, the traditional approach didn't work. And it was really just because nobody else could afford to live there. And they were just barely nose above water. That's basically it. And, um, and, uh, and we did find relief. I did talk about it in the, in the, um, in the last, uh, uh, podcast we talked about, um, uh, I went looking for somebody to help with the young children. And what I ended up doing almost accidentally was finding a perfect place for my, my, uh, teen sons who were actually the ones that needed, needed the help is that uh, I got my son to start volunteering to help open up a, a deli that was a couple blocks away. And they ended up adopting him and they call him Ike for Eisenhower. And they like, they still mess with him. He's still in Portland and they give him a hard time. But what he ended up getting was like what I like to call the council of dads, sort of just like these old retirees. And they uh, have a vast wisdom and they really, they really adopted the kid. And it was something that was transcendent. So like, even in the context of having a, a neighborhood, that's like, um, it's, it's, ability to afford, you can still find those pockets of wealth. It's just, you got to look a little bit, you got to be a little bit creative with it. And as it turns out, it's there sitting right under your nose. You just might have to, might have to use a different filter, you know? Um, 
but once that was part of our portfolio, it definitely made uh, it definitely made the livability better because now I felt like I was tied into a community, right? Those guys would drive by and say hi and uh, just let me know that they were looking out. <laughs> I thought that was cool. Well, and, right? and, you know, and it's this organic um, weaving of this cross-generational story. Right. Because, you know, they're, they're representing uh, a potential future. Right. Because they've lived in the neighborhood for a long time. And they're like, yeah, you know, things ebb and flow here. It's, sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's not so good. But we always have a way to help each other through. Right. And that's the kind of thing you're not going to learn in school. That's not that where you're going to learn in these institutions that are driving you towards comp competition all the time. Right. You're, either, you're in this win-lose. And the truth is, is that in life, as we've all experienced, is that it's an ebb and flow. You know, right. some days you're at 60 percent and they're at 40 and vice versa. And it's just this constant refreshing of that storyline because we have new information coming in. We have new people coming in we have new thought forms and capitals coming in because people bring it with them right and it's just putting the right container together so that those are activated so they're emerged not in a permanent way just in a way to test it out and say is this who we are is this who we want to be you know right. and being able to to uh, emerge a language around that so that you're activating energy is always going to be met with resistance that's just the nature of energy but there's ways to work them together so you can actually um, emerge a story of future and you mm -hmm. need both of those to do it so yeah. when people go into spaces where you know because there's a lot of people who want to create these ideal intentional communities and they want people just like them and that's a monoculture and that's completely unnatural and it doesn't survive you need to have complexity. You need to have um, a biome that, that, that invites in difference and differences right. so that they, you can actually emerge a stronger story of future. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. I can see people shaking their heads and saying, no, no, we just, we just actually get this. You know, we have a, um, I own a company that can help people create their own self-governing community, basically. So I get calls from people that'll say, we want to get a, a square mile of land and we want to populate it with people just like us. And, you know, I guess they could go there, but it seems terribly tedious. Um, and it doesn't invite in opportunity for happy surprises. Like just to use an example, I set out to find a sitter for my babies. And what I found were mentors for my sons. Right. And their contribution was transcendent. And mm -hmm. sometimes you don't know what you need you know what you want but you don't know what you need right so um uh i am inclined to agree with you i actually think that what we need uh, ruth frequently uses a metaphor the irritant that creates the pearl that's actually supposed to be there it's it's mm -hmm. how we're wired but you know not everybody's into that that's you know they, they say well that's you know that might be good for you but what i like for me is my gated community and my hoa and you know i mean <laughs> okay i mean like, I like the joke, the software that we created is an HOA that pays you to be who you are. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you know, however you want to float your goat or whatever. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's all, um, uh, I would agree with you. It's, um, uh, we had talked the last time about an investment in unlocking soft capital is if you want a friend, try to be one, but also be open, be ready to receive and receptive to the idea that maybe what you're looking for and what you want isn't really what you need. Right. And, um, 
this tends to bias me towards looking for people who are sources of wisdom capital, which is frequently the old, and they're always discarded in our communities. It's the weirdest thing because they actually have so much to share. They really know what they're talking about. I don't know if I told you about Lena. Lena lived right behind us. She'd been in that house for 50 years. She was born in a drawer in Germany and, uh, and it had come over at literally in a dresser drawer and uh, she was real old, but she really knew her stuff, right? So if I wanted to know what was going on in the neighborhood, like in the deep history, Lena would, would, would tell me and she would tell me, you know, who was living there 50 years ago and what happened when their foundation collapsed and blah, 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 blah. I love talking to Lena, by the way. So it's that kind of thing. There's a lot there. Uh, and, um, but you gotta be open to it. Right. Well, and, and part of, part of what has got us into this moment is that we've replaced connection with convenience and convenience comes at a high price, not only financially, but at, on a human level. So sure. that, sure, if you have enough money, you can have all your food delivered during COVID. You can have, you know, you could be on Zoom all the time. You don't have to interact with people at all. But you find that we now have a higher incidence of mental health issues. We have a higher incidence of drinking and other, um, you know, avenues like that where people are disconnecting from reality because they are not getting this human connection. Right. So it, it's, it's so, so we're, we're, now having to reground ourselves in what we value right and so for the people who had said well i can't do this because i don't have enough time you know COVID said here's all the time you're ever going to want right and now they're going oh wait now i have to figure out what what this means you know so it's a reset of all of what we value it's a reset of what gets rewarded right and it's in the the most important thing is that when they talked about essential work you know, we have to look at what's essential in our own lives. And what people discovered is what's essential is staying connected to people and to themselves. Right. And the, the anti-fragile playbook is a way to uh, externalize this desire for connection and do it in a way that you're building a shared future. You know, there's not a one-size-fits-all way to do this. It's not like, you know, that all communities are going to be the same. Uh, but there's a lot of things that are very similar. They want to have their family taken care of. They want to eat every day. They want to have clean water. They want to have a purposeful life. They want to have to have impact in a, in a positive way and to have their kids know that there's a way forward into a future that feels uncertain at every level. Yeah, we should talk about protopia because that's a good framing for what you're talking about. You know, of course, it's distinguished from utopia. Utopia is actually, by definition, not going to happen. And so, like, why rally around something that's not going to happen? But I like Protopia, which, you know, things become incrementally better over time. What's great about Protopia, by the way, this is one of my favorite things about when people hit bottom, then, then as they climb out of that bottom, things get incrementally better. And that's actually really good for morale. It's pretty good um, because it's like, oh, it's and the definition of is that things get just better just a little bit at a time day by day. And, um, and you get some wins, you, know? you, get some, you get some wins. And here's the thing, like if you got kids, they're going to experience economic setback, right? So if you're in the middle of economic setback, this is your perfect opportunity to demonstrate to them how you get through hard times with laughter. And how do you do that? You do that by embracing a, a, a philosophy of protopia, one that says things will get incrementally better over time. And 
I'm, the, the methodology I use is to slash my expenses and live real smart and <laughs> uh-huh, <laughs> right? uh-huh. like, because that's smart. First and foremost, that's smart. Recessions happen. You're going to have to get real, you have to get real frugal. But in that context and kids, you know, they don't really know the difference, especially when they're young. I mean, you can celebrate Christmas, you know, in July, they don't really know the difference. So the thing is you get to help them define a reality. And it's, it's all about like, you know, um, um, really just making the most of things. But if you can do that with your kids, you can do it with yourself, right? You don't have to despair. You can actually um, uh, really kind of um, uh, reframe what constitutes success. And in so doing, you can help yourself with your morale because morale is kind of an issue, right? Well, and, and that reframing is what I mean by when we're talking about putting a container around the potential, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that what we do is we've, we've been acculturated to believe that success means this, that you have a big house, you have a couple of cars, you have TVs in every room, and you can have your whole life delivered to you at the top of the button. And what happens when you don't have the coins to put that into the machine? You know, all of a sudden, it's no longer this this aspirational proof of your value. You actually have to get in and go, what is really on? You know, what's really this? What, what am I looking for? What is what is the right. machine that I want to be part of? Right. And we're also seeing literally how how fragile this whole system is that we're in. And yeah. we haven't seen the last of it. In fact, we're in the very beginning of it. Yeah. Well, earlier on, we were talking about a playbook. We're trying to help people um, affect a, um, a redevelopment of their community on their terms. And the you know, first part of it, is, I think, is, is introduction of essential language. Um, but what, we, what I had talked about just a few minutes ago is there was these, these at the time, there were five steps. It, it turns out I've, I've been working with this model for the year since. I now come down to seven, seven steps. So this will be something we would talk through in the context of the anti-fragile playbook. But the first one is is actually outrage, right? Like people begin in a state of just, they're just dissatisfied. What's the, what's the nature of your dissatisfaction, right? Um, and you got to dig into that. You got to get into kind of the heart of it because it actually helps inform the second step, which what's your vision? How are you going to make it better? Like you don't really know what you're, what's going on. You can't really form a vision of what, what you need. But once you've done that, that actually gets into your, your team, your community building, because you're going to need a team. And we talked a lot about that at the last conversation and this one is that you you can actually form a basis with somebody a basis of collaboration in your community and it might just be your next door neighbor or somebody down the block if you walk for an hour uh at a moderate pace you cover 340 acres and in a city that's about 5,000 people um you're going to find one or two people like you that are, are going to be able to help out and that's your basic your basis of, of self-governance if you will so like a basis of, of collaboration and if you've done your homework around those first three steps, you're actually ready to receive assistance. You're ready to receive uh, an upgrade. You're ready to receive some funding, right? That's actually your fourth mm-hmm. fourth phase of the funding. So, but I'm not going to go through the whole the whole process. It's actually what my company calls the community activation and launch methodology. Um, I did want to just emphasize that a part of actually doing your homework is understanding what it is you need because people think that they know what they they want, but that's that's not really what they need. Like they usually say, "Oh, I need more money." but but that usually just creates more need and i'm not saying that you don't need more money actually the project that we're that we're designing the anti-fragile playbook would actually put more money in your pocket right but you but you but there's ways that you can affect an immediate improvement of your living circumstance if you incorporate forms of soft capital and we've talked about some of them the 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 the, the wisdom capital the trust capital the attention capital there's others and i don't know if you wanted to elaborate on some of those because i do think they're un- almost under recognized well, and 
the thing with soft capital is we've been entrained to only focus on the hard capital. So we just forget about this kind of stuff that makes life worth living. And it's been uh, diminished in its value because you can't quantify it easily. Even though it is, it, it is what is needed in, and desired to make a life of meaning. And it is, um, it is the caring for others. It is, I've heard it described as the caring economy and the acorn economy and all of these different forms where people understand that um, there's a feeling you have when life is going well that can't be bought. And it right. is all those capitals that are, that are you know, coming together to create that feeling. And it activates in people a desire for others to feel like that too. And so that's how it multiplies, you know, and it's because I, I mean, I know for myself, if I discover something that makes me feel good or some, like I like the flavor or whatever, I'm, I'm a total evangelist and I want everybody to try it and I want everybody to feel it. And what you discover is people have been um, acculturated to believe that they can't have access to it that they just right. have a hard life, that they that their trauma is just too deep to and overwhelming to actually believe that there could even be a ray of light there. And so we have to be delicate with people. We have to be really conscious of their readiness to receive, their readiness to feel worthy that they can have a life that's different than the drudgery that they're feeling right now. Right. And that's why we want to take be really... You know, we want to listen deeply and we want to proceed uh, cautiously and with respect for where people are. And that's when when people dump a lot of money on a community or a person or, you know, like the lotto winners that go from multimillionaires to destitute and depressed two years later. It's not because they didn't have enough money. It's because they there was not a, an ability to receive it. There was... And they, they had all these other um, unformed capitals and pressures in their community that were driving them to a different outcome. So right. that's where the playbook comes in because it gives guidance around that. Well, I mean, and actually just getting back to that, because that's actually a really pertinent example. Um, I was with the Tony Hawk Foundation for two years. I was on the board. That organization um, gives millions of dollars every year for skateboard parks. And if you don't have your homework done you're not gonna get money right because they've learned from experience that if you throw money at people who aren't ready for it it's chaos and the same is true and i spent a lot of years in technology and and these guys a lot of guys in the tech industry they run their mouths about if they just have money things get better but i can assure you that they have not received money before like i can just tell i can feel it nobody's saying ask for lots of money unless they can demonstrate that they know how to handle a little bit of money that's just all there is to it right it's it's otherwise it's complete chaos so you know, a lot of what we're talking about is actually preparing the team for success without it turning into chaos. And a lot of that is done actually by just tapping into forms of, of soft capital. I, I like to talk about Linda. Linda in Portland has been doing community activism for like 40 something years. She's unflappable. She's got lots of wisdom and no aspirations to get into politics. So you approach her and she's got great wisdom. She shares in a few words. You learn in a few words, which you couldn't have gained in, in books on how to get it done. And those people are in your neighborhood, right? Um, which is a pretty good deal. Well, and, and it's also the people that are going to do the work regardless. You know, they're, they're not waiting for money to do the work. 
they, um, and, you know, and honestly, Kent and I fall in this category too, is that we've both been working for decades to yeah. engage with people, to do community work. Um, I remember, like, I don't know if this happened to you, Kent, but for me, everyone would just pat me on the head and say, you're just so altruistic. You're such an idealist. And, yeah. and it really was kind of snarky. You know, it wasn't a compliment at all. And, but now as we're in this, this, this time, this post COVID world that we're in, where we need to slow down, we need to find things that are deeply rooted that have had a slow growth to prove their sustainability you know, all of a sudden, maybe I'm not such an idealist, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe I'm, I'm not quite the uh, unicorn they thought that I was just being very realistic about a world they couldn't see yet. And I know you've had similar experience. No, I have. I was in, I was in high tech for a long time. I was, uh, uh, and I, and I have been in it long enough to recognize that there's certain trends and what you begin to recognize is these cycles, these economic cycles aren't necessarily going to get better each time around. It's more and more likely that there are an increasing number of people that are what we call economic refugees, which I'm not talking homeless here. It's inclusive to homeless, but it's actually a majority of those that are economic refugees or those who just cannot afford where they're at. Right. And they don't, they don't have, they have not been taught how to make the most out of soft capital. So they're, they're increasingly, they're in a bad spot. Right. And so I've been like obsessed, like, <laughs> like obsessed with pursuing this because it's the right thing to do. That's all there is to mm -hmm. it. I, I can't even fathom doing anything else. And I have received no small amount of um, pushback on doing it, but it's the right thing because why wouldn't it be the right thing to help communities reclaim their dignity on their terms? Um, uh, 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 acknowledging and recognizing forms of soft capital, which might be transcendent of money. Duh, of course I'm going to do it, right? Because, <laughs> because, because even if I fail, and I don't, by the way, that's worth, that's another conversation. It's another word we should elaborate on a little bit about failure. Even if I fail, I've tried and I can tell my children that I did everything I could. That's a really important thing. I'm telling them a story that informs who they are as people. But about failure, by the way, I did skateboarding for a long time. I still kind of skate with my girls getting older. So I'm, I'm skating with her. Um, uh, but I taught my son how to skate and whatever. The thing about that is you, you, success doesn't exist in the absence of failure. You don't succeed unless you fail. That's all there is to it. So this aversion that people have towards failure is absurd. It's a complete contrivance. It doesn't relate to reality at all. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, actually. Well, and, and one of the pieces, an article I wrote a couple of years ago is the arc of failure bends towards success with apologies oh. to Martin Luther King. But the idea, and I listed all the things that were my failures. Now they're all gonna be successes this year. So thank you, COVID, um, right. because they were, they were playing the long game. You know, we've been acculturated to look for the short win all the time. And that's, um, you know, and that comes at a very high cost because you have, you're privatizing the profits and you're socializing the costs. And that might work the first 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years of like, for example, coal mining. Okay. There was just so much of every, and people weren't using resources in the same way. And so everybody felt like they got by. Well, here we are a hundred years into it and we have generations of people with, black lung, with uh, disruptive families, with disconnection from identity, you know, that they're just, they're, they're, they're left with the detritus of their lives. And the profiteers are long gone. There, there's no solution for them. And people have to find a way forward in the midst of all this. And with the Anti-Fragile Playbook, 
it's like, how do you recognize the value that you have? How do you recognize that wealth? And how do you put it together? How do you weave it together as a community? How do you put that quilt of opportunity together? And, you know, we use a lot of metaphor that's around women's work, you know, handwork, whether it's quilting or weaving or, you know, you know, bringing, you know, cooking or bringing things together that's been traditionally women's work, because that's been part of the storyline for women is to keep the home fires burning, is to, to be holding these pieces together as the world falls apart. And the, the anti-fragile playbook really resonates with me. As soon as I heard the term anti-fragile, I was like, oh, wow, I totally get that, you know? Um, because we all know what fragile is and how you have to be protective of it. And it, it just takes certain conditions for it to be you know, successful. Anti-fragile, I love because it's more where I am, which is like, hey, let me fail a lot. Hey, let me not get it right all the time. And so, but there's still this potential for me to bring it together with partnership to collaborate with others, to build something that actually is, that sustains, that feeds you mind, body, and soul. Well, so I was thinking as we buy, as we trend towards the conclusion of this one, if you tell the story of community Renaissance marketplace, I'll tell the story of Burnside. Because okay. it actually, it's a, it's a complementary story arc that actually leads us to where we are here. Because both of them begin actually after a, 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 um, um, an extended period of, of efforts to make it happen. And they have actually literally continued, even if the original project isn't what it was, right? So you start with Community Renaissance Market. Okay. I well, love this story. So in uh, 2009, uh, an acquaintance came to the house and said, hey, there's this Albertsons uh, not too far from here. And it seems like it would be a great place for you to test out some of your theories around how to build community and how to build an ecosystem. And so uh, being the, the plucky uh, adventurer I was, I said, okay. And I went over there and all of a sudden, within a few days, I had the keys to an old Albertsons market, 60,000 square feet, and was able to test out all these theories that if we get the right people in the right place, with just a little bit of support, they'll actually build an ecosystem of, of community and, and they could be successful. So that in, in, in the beginning, that seemed like that was working well. We had a, a commercial kitchen and a commercial bakery. So people were able to create nano businesses. You know, someday they might grow up and become micro businesses. But uh, the more, probably the most valuable thing that came out of it is people learned they shouldn't be in business at all. But they were like, I need to get a J-O-B because this is a lot harder than I thought it was gonna be. But they had in that, we had what uh, we, they, they had the opportunity to fail. And as we were talking about earlier, that's where the real learning occurs. It's like you have to fail at things multiple times in order to find a web pathway to success on your terms that is meaningful to the community that you're trying to be part of. So Community Renaissance Market just kind of turned along. Um, my husband died in April of 2010, and um, I, I, I really used uh, the market as my grief therapy as I was just going to keep, you know, doing the work. And uh, about six months later, ended up on uh, uh, world news with Diane Sawyer as an example of how there was a bright light in the economy and this was in 2010 so this was you know we were in a similar world to now in that there the big story there was still a lot of um, disconnect from opportunity and nobody was really doing anything on the community level so got on to world news with Diane Sawyer 
and then uh, got through the Christmas season, did a lot of things, but and it ended up closing December 31st of 2011. But even though the place itself, the container shut down, the potential lived on that people 10 years later are still connected because of that experience that they got it. They, they had a chance to test themselves and found that even if they didn't pass that test to their estimate, they still learned something that, that changed the way they moved through the world. And we're still very connected. And it was, you know, it happened, it was ahead of its time. So it wasn't a financial success. And it took me a long time to even think of it as a success at all. Because, you know, I, I threw, I, I pretty much bankrupted myself keeping that afloat because I knew it was an important thing and it just wasn't part of the vision Austin had for itself. So this was literally like we were on this little island down south, just like being, get, getting things done and just we're getting national recognition and global recognition, but there was nobody locally that really got it. One of the other things that came out of it was this con concept of slow tech, which is sustainable local organic work plus technology, which is where you take the work that people are doing naturally occurring in their own neighborhood, in their own desire, in their lives, and you add technology to it to amplify the human experience, not to distract from it. And so this is when I saw um, Kent's company 214 app, I was like, that's exactly what I need. That's exactly the, the spark I need to actually activate this idea of people doing work of meaning in their own lives to create a sustainable future for all. That's a great segue because that's actually, um, I was excited because of course my organization is staffed in support of a, of a philosophy of servant leadership and, leader and, and, and um, service to the community. And the slow tech model really resonated because of course I've been in tech for a long time and I'm about sick of the overinflated claimed status of tech. Tech is not that important. It, it, it facilitates a certain outcome, but the people are the most important part. And, and the other thing that's really offensive to me is, is high tech and fast tech. It's like really mm -hmm. ridiculous, it's preposterous. Move actually. fast and break things. And we're like, okay, okay. I'm really good at falling down the stairs quickly. Like you want to do that over and over again. So um, so the, the, the slow tech thing really resonated. What's cool about, again, the community, community renaissance market, I'd only just sort of heard it in dispatches in our interactions. But what's happened is, is that the, you had earned through that experience um, priceless trust capital with people in the community, even if you yes. had helped them realize that they did not, they were, they didn't have the chops to run a business. Cause that's the thing. I was raised in a family business. I've been about business my whole life. If people aren't smart about operations, they end up earning their way. They end up working their way into a more than full-time job that pays less than minimum wage with no exit strategy. It happens over and over again. It ruins families. It ruins people, right? So if you can help them figure out that early, that's good. It's what I would consider a fail fast philosophy. Like you get in and get out and then learn from it and do it again, right? So mm -hmm. um, so the Burnside one, so I, uh, I had... Um, I was a skateboarder and I got tired of being treated like garbage. And for whatever reason, my friends thought that I may be good at advocacy. And it's probably because I dropped out of high school and my dad had me go do sales. So I was the only one of us that could talk to adults. And so, um, and so I, uh, uh, got involved in advocacy in the eighties and learned the hard way that they don't really, the city doesn't care about you unless you have, um, uh, money or a vote, you know, right. So I, um, I, um, you become a little bit, 
you become a little bit, uh, I would say, ruthless as an advocate when you realize that the institution doesn't really care, <laughs> right? And and I, I don't do failure well. I, I get quiet and I get methodical. So we end up spending a lot of years um, learning through failure just how to pull this off. And this is in the context of a city that the police would stop you, take your skateboard, empty your pockets, and leave you out of Terminal 6, right? They weren't very nice about the thing, the whole skateboard thing. So um, we had um, tried to ask for a park and then and what would it happen um, what had happened concurrently is that I got basically adopted by uh, activists that had cut their teeth during the civil rights era. So, you know, I ended up getting in with a group of people that called themselves guerrilla gardeners. And what they would do is ride their bikes and um, uh, we'd ride our bikes. And they told, they told me dress in black because if they can't see you, they can't hit you. And then we would ride around and we would throw, we had satchel bags full of wildflower seeds and we'd throw them in empty lots. And what it would do is that it would turn those lots into parks basically. And nobody knew who did it. Cause that's sort of the point it's all about sort of anonymity and, and shared attribution, right? So I learned from these people, the philosophy of smash and grab and beg for forgiveness and all that other stuff. And so we had tried to build essentially illegal facilities for years and had them destroyed over and over again. And then in 1990, we built an illegal concrete skateboard park under the east end of the Burnside Bridge in Portland called Burnside. It'll, it's actually celebrating its 30th birthday uh, this month. And it's um, uh, what we had done by that point after years of failure, what I like to call five years of failure is recognize the right alchemy, if you wrote, the right mix is choosing one of the first areas of town and then immediately, immediately improving the context of that neighborhood through a collaboration with various players, law enforcement, neighborhood association, business district, et cetera. And, and through that, we're able to collaborate a community policing agreement in 1991. So anyway, the park's been there 30 years. And, and the cool part about that is it's not really about the park. What it became about is trying to infect other people and other municipalities with the idea that they could smash and grab themselves and that actually kicked off what might be considered a renegade skate park boom which actually triggered what is now called the second coming of the skate park because um, now there's concrete parks everywhere that's actually what kind of earned me some um, equity so, uh, social equity and, and trust equity within the skateboard community and so and kind of kicked me off on this whole kick about self-governance so you know when i encountered ruth you know the community renaissance market i saw it as a really strong example of burnside right because what she's doing is helping these people have a sense of economic agency um uh and you know and she framed it as a failure uh but you know with ruth it's sort of like with a wink of the eye failure is is sort of like embraced in much the same way that an experienced jazz musician might call uh, uh you know um um you know might refer to an awkward honk in the middle of a jam session it just happens to be a thing and she's inclined to get back up on there and do it again so that's kind of the basis of our collaboration now is to just get in there and do it right Yes. I don't know if you yes. muted yourself because I sent you a funny meme and I can tell you were laughing. You just feel it through the fabric. So. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and, and we do that a lot too, by the way. There's a lot of memery going on. Um, it's called the back and, It's a Tim Curry poem. I don't know if you saw it. It's a good one. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Tim Curry. So, um, but. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting that, and I believe that this is happening all over the place, and we're in this unique moment, as Bucky uh, Fuller predicted, where we're going to be able to coordinate and collaborate, because we have connection. And that's right. the difference from when your grandparents had to trek from Texas to Oregon, is they, they were doing it blind. In, in so many ways. You didn't know what the road ahead was. There was no ways, you know? It's like there was no cell phone. You couldn't let people know what's going on. 
And so we have, we're in this unique moment where we have connection to the world, you know, that the people that, that Kent and I engage with on a regular basis are, some are in Australia, some are in Sweden, some are local, you know, they're just all over the place and they speak multiple languages, but we come together around a shared story of future, which is to make it accessible and inclusive to everybody with no exceptions. And to do right. it in a way that, um, as I like to say, you know, no tree grows from the top down. So we're at the roots, we're in the dirt. And we're saying, you know, what th this, um, there's been a lot of uh, people who have written about the, the connection between trees, you know, the root web. And that's, that's the level that we're working on here is like, you know, how can we, you know, have a clean entanglement of the roots? so that they're feeding each other. And because there's a lot of soft and invisible capital that's happening below the surface as well. So it's not just about how do you, you know, harvest all the fruit. It's like, how do you invest in the roots so that the fruit will be there for generations to come? Right. I like to say it's a good thing that trees don't grow from the top down because it would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you know, that, 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 that thought came to me years ago, um, certainly looking at these 600-year-old trees in Texas, like, uh-oh, it's not going to be pretty. But it, it came to me because I read a, a, a science fiction short story where they landed on this planet where people were born at their height and they grew their bodies on the way down. Oh, I'll have and, to read that one. You got to yeah, <laughs> I'll have to try and remember what it was, but it was just well, like, wow, that would be super trippy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. um, no, well, so like the, the thing is, is that what we're trying to do with the, not we're trying to do, because we're actually literally doing it. Actually, the anti -fragile, yeah. yeah, literally <laughs> trying to make a stop. So the anti-fragile playbook would enable people to essentially create a version of the community renaissance market and the Burnside Park <laughs> in their community. So they have greater agency, so they can increase the health, wealth and safety uh, and security of their of their community on their terms right so um uh i like it i mean for us it's like i guess we're just um wired in such a way that we can um you know pull two parts of community renaissance market one part of burnside and three parts of this and put it together and then the intention again is that people will get this and say i can do this i'm going to follow these steps and look what i did right and yeah. uh, uh and I'm, I'm digging it man what a fun project um I'm thinking maybe we could just end and then I can meet you at the park early for a walk. What do you think? I think that sounds like a really good idea because we need to talk some more. <laughs> we do need to talk. And I was also thinking, tacos. So <laughs> yeah, hmm. that too. All right, man. I'll see you at the okay. park. What do you think of that? See ya. Sounds good. Cheers. Cheers.